0: Welcome to Cup of Cubby Blue, your baseball is suspended home for Cubs news, updates, and banter. We're the official podcast of Bleed Cubby Blue, and you can find us by searching for Bleed Cubby Blue wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sarah Sanchez. I write about baseball for Bleed Cubby Blue, and generally, I would be joined by my partner in podcast crime, Andy Cruz Vanasek, but she is on her way to the hospital (laughs) with her husband for a non-COVID emergency. So send them all the best, but it is not a pandemic-related emergency. However, I'm super thrilled that we get to celebrate the podcast's one-year anniversary with a special guest today, uh, and that is Tim Sheridan. Tim, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you for uh, allowing me to be here on the big anniversary show, and uh, I hope uh, everything works out with Andy and her husband. I mean, that's an unfortunate situation, but uh, happy to be here, Sarah.
0: Yeah, I mean, I... (laughs) look. Could 2020 be any crazier, right? Like we're living in a world without baseball. We're all living through the pandemic as best we can. Uh, Tim, I know you're the spring training PA announcer and you've done a lot of Cubs documentaries. Uh, You are at least one of the lucky few who has seen baseball in 2020, am I right?
1: Uh, I did. I did get to witness the Cubs um, leading up to the spring training games. Uh, I'm always down there at the ballpark uh, going all the way back to um, the days at Fitch Park when they're playing at HOCOM. Because uh, as people who follow the Cubs deeply in through spring training, they know that some of the the really fun times and the unique time to be around the team is actually before the spring training games start. When they're when they're there, they the pitchers and catchers show up and you can actually be like right up there the fence about, you know, 10 feet from them. They walk right by you when they switch fields and You can kind of see what's going on, get a feel for the team. So I really loved that particular time. And of course, um, I would go down there even before that, because a lot of times the guys would be working out on their own before pitchers and catchers showed up. And so there are times that I would be down there with my video camera and filming the goings on there. And sometimes that could get kind of funny and and interesting because it was very loose. They weren't really official practices. Most of the time back in the day, uh, conducted by Tim Buss, they called it, uh, oh, yeah. Camp Bussey, the strength and conditioning <laughs> coordinator of the Cubs for so long. Now he's over with uh, Joe Madden with the Angels. But uh, yeah, so I love that time. And then um, then we went into the games, of course, and, uh, this spring. And then we got shut down, which really kind of stunk. But, you know, that's what happened. And we're all just rolling with it. So, But I, I was happy to be able to uh, announce the games that I could and watched the Cubs as much as I could over this, you know, past uh, time during spring training. So we're here.
0: We're here. I think that we're here is about the most perfect summation of pandemic life I can imagine. You know, Andy isn't here today, but I'm going to kick things off with her favorite question, which is a question we borrowed from friend of the show, Rob Nyer, when he came on. Uh, we love to know what is your first or favorite baseball memory, or you can do both if you want, but just give us an idea of where your love of baseball comes from.
1: Okay. Well, uh, actually my, my, my first baseball memory actually wasn't a great one. I, I don't know why this just came into my mind, but, um, I was taken out to, to join a t-ball team and I think I was like four years old and, uh, my grandma uh, was there and dropped me off at the park. And she kind of basically said, uh, there's the field go on down there. And, uh, that'll be your team type of thing. Well, at four (laughs) years old, I didn't, wasn't really too keen on just walking up and, you know, introducing myself to a ball club. So it didn't really start off too well. It wasn't until about uh, a few years later, maybe it was about seven that my dad, uh, took, um, Me and my brothers out to the old Metropolitan Stadium in Bloomington, Minnesota, because I grew up in in Minneapolis. And uh, we went to a game. We sat out in the left field bleachers. And Harmon Killebrew, the great uh, slugger for the Twins at the time, hit two home runs. One landed not too far from us. So basically, uh, I was hooked from that moment on. So that kind of uh, started me off on my love of baseball. And then, of course, uh, like so many boys growing up, I thought I was going to be that guy out in the major league uh, ball field. Didn't end up quite working out that way, but, you know, I just tried to figure out a way that I could stay close to baseball uh, at that point. But that's kind of how I started off my early memories.
0: Man, I, I've never had a home run come right to me. I, the closest I got a few years ago, I took my dad to see a Yankees Red Sox game when I was living in Boston and it was a Father's Day present. They came out for Labor Day weekend. Oh, nice. so obviously, what was that?
1: I said nice.
0: Oh, yeah. it was. So, you know, my dad grew up in Arizona and New Mexico and now lives in Utah. He had never seen the Yankees play in person. And the, the Yankees are his favorite team. So I couldn't get oh, him to wow. a game in New York, but I thought I could get him to a Yankees-Red Sox game at Fenway. And honest to God, we're sitting in the center field, like left center field, area. And Dustin Pedroia hits a home run that's coming so close to us. You can like see the ball <laughs> getting bigger wow. as it approaches you. Yeah. And it landed about five five rows in front of us, but that's the closest I've ever come to a home run ball.
1: <laughs> that's still so, you know, it's so cool when when that happens and a ball gets close to you or have an opportunity to, you know, feel like you're seeing like the real part of the game right there in front of you. That's it's always fun.
0: It's the greatest thing. One of the things about baseball that I think people miss is how close fans are to the action and how much we get to interact with the players as there, you know, if you're sitting down the third baseline, you can see somebody come at you for a foul ball or the players who come, go out to the bullpen, the pitchers who are walking out there before the game. I'm one of those fools who gets to the game 2 hours early no matter uh, what because uh, I want to see everything.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, and that's even amplified um more spring training because the ballparks are are smaller and more intimate and that type of thing so you can really get up close and and personal especially if you're one of the people like you who gets out there early and gets into the park as soon as you can um it's fun to watch batting practice i've always enjoyed that and one time actually i was this is not how it should necessarily go, but I was uh, filming or taking photographs or filming one of the two. And I was actually in the stands, um, but just on the edge of the stands. And someone was signing autographs. I forget who it was, maybe it was Ryan Dempster or someone. And I was filming that. So my back was to the batting cage. And all of a sudden I hear, you know, heads up. And so I turn around, I have a pretty good sized camera in my hands. And sure as I turn around, screaming liner nails me right in the solar plexus. I mean, just crushes me. Luckily, I didn't drop my camera. I I don't know how. (laughs) And the ball falls down essentially right at my feet. I pick it up, grab it, and hold it up, you know, like, yeah, I got it. Just literally (laughs) trying to have people know that I'm not dying inside and about ready to just, you know, say, (laughs) can barely breathe. Right, right. Yeah, that was Alfonso Soriano who hit that one. So
0: I mean, he could hit a ball quite hard off the bat. I was actually watching some tape of Soriano recently from his, you know, his kind of peak years, like right after mm-hmm. he came over to the Cubs from the Yankees. And man, he could hit a screaming line drive.
1: Oh yeah. He just had such power in his wrists. I mean, it was amazing to watch him hit. And well, that one I think left some lace marks on my stomach, so I won't forget that. I still have that ball, though. I had to mark that one. This is the one that Alfonso Soriano hit me in the gut with.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, at least you got to keep the ball. That's great. Soriano really should sign that one for you.
1: (laughs) There you go. I like it.
0: If Alfonso Soriano listens to the show, we need you to get on signing that ball for today. Right, right. Um, You know, one of the things that you were talking about filming there, Cubs Talk is so awesome. And I love watching these episodes. It's a great baseball distraction during the pandemic. How did this project come about? Do you have any favorite moments from the show?
1: Well, it, it came about um, in a weird sort of way because I, back when um, home movie cameras were coming out where you could actually afford to buy one and and I just would bring it with me everywhere I went and that was luckily enough at, in the press box at Old Hookam Park. I think my first video camera that I personally owned was probably around um, and also when they started getting a little bit smaller than when they had to put the whole like video tape cassette in it when they were like kind of large (laughs) Um, then they they got a little smaller where they had what they called a high eight which were a lot smaller tape so when I got one of those I think it was about 1990 but prior to that I would bring my 35 millimeter camera and and shoot photographs but once I got my first video camera it was like all right I'm I'm shooting video of everything that I see got to be in a press box. And that was where it was the old press box at, um, old Holcomb park where it was wide open. And I was lucky enough to be right behind home plate as a public address announcer right between WGN radio and TV when they were broadcasting. So it was just this unique place to be. And I kind of asked the people around me, Hey, you mind if I shoot some video? And, And again, it looked like just what it was a little home video camera. And, um, they're like ah No, go ahead. No problem. So, I started shooting. Anyhow, long story short, years down the road, I realized, wow, that's kind of historical stuff. It's Harry Carey. I mean, I was shooting him right next to me as he was singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game. In fact, one time he was swinging the microphone, my public dress microphone, so violently back and forth that he hit the camera, smashed my camera. But luckily, he didn't break the <laughs> lens or anything. But, oh, no. um, but that's how close I was, and so eventually I thought, well, you know what, I could and probably should do something with this. So I had the idea to put together a documentary, and I had my background was kind of in um, in television, so I had, had worked as an editor and producer for a couple of the uh, network affiliates in the Phoenix area um, out of college, and so uh, I started shooting everything as if I was making a documentary and that was my plan and I was interviewing anyone I could. And, um, but I like to do it as well. So it wasn't just that I wanted to do this documentary. It's just, I enjoyed filming and I ended up filming and filming every spring and getting so much um, on tape that it was kind of overwhelming. So when I really decided I wanted to put together a documentary, like an hour to an hour and a half documentary, I had a hard time figuring out what was going to go in and what was not going to go in because I just had, you know, had that time hundreds of hours of, wow. of uh, stuff that I had recorded. So, and interviews and everything. And so I was kind of waiting for that big moment. And that would have been, I guess, when the Cubs won the world series, but um, long story short is trying to figure out how to synthesize what is now, you know, Well, over a thousand dollars of footage into an hour and a half is just like mind boggling. And so um, that's where the idea uh, I had watched the TED Talks, as a matter of fact, and I thought, you know, I could do something on a weekly, you know, mostly weekly basis every week and do like a segment of a documentary or, you know, something different out of my archives. And then I could do that, you know, until I run out of stuff, which is probably never, (laughs) you know, so (laughs) that's kind of how the uh, idea got started.
0: Well, before I ask you my next question, where can fans find these awesome documentaries, these weekly clips that you put out?
1: Well, they can go to my website, Boys of Spring, which actually, um, I think Al started Bleak Cubby Blue, uh, like the very first, same spring that I started my Boys of Spring website. And basically, I was kind of thought if I'm at spring training, and I'm shooting video and, and photographs, why not, you know? give it out to the Cubs fans who are, you know, the avid ones who want to see what's happening. And um, so I've had that website ever since. Um, and that's boysofspring.com. And so they're all there. They're also on YouTube, of course, which is, uh, you know, where they're hosted. So you can go to Cub Talks um, on YouTube or my name, Tim Sheridan on YouTube. And it's pretty easy to find there. And then you can see. So I started, the cub talks last year and i think we had about uh about 30 episodes last year and now i i started actually had did one while i was at spring training and then the whole covid craziness happened and so I, a few weeks back i started um getting into them again so i think there's three more i think we have four for the uh season two and they're you know ongoing so we'll be popping one down every week
0: That's so awesome. I mean, COVID probably lends itself to a whole different angle of all of this, right? I mean, I've been writing a diary of life without baseball. Yeah, I
1: saw that. I read some of those.
0: (laughs) Nice. I hope you enjoyed them. But that's sort of been my thing. I'm like, we don't have baseball right now, but we have this historic absence of baseball. It's not really something any of us has ever lived through, minus the strikes, shortened seasons. Right. And that's really different, right? That's a labor dispute. And you know that there's a procedure going on that can end it it just sort of feels yep. like this is such limbo it's so weird
1: yeah it totally is it's just everybody I talk to is the same thing they just kind of they all scratch their head and they a lot of times don't know what to say or kind of have a hard time figuring out you know what's going to happen going forward it's really kind of nutty
0: Right. I mean, I actually think the wisest people have no idea what's going to happen going forward. You know, they (laughs) have like, I listen to these like epidemiologists on TV, and the smartest ones are all like, you know, 18 months, maybe two years. We don't know. It's going to be different. We're going to try to figure stuff out. And it's all about being adaptable and just really taking care of each other and making sure that we put ourselves in the safest positions possible. Um, We're actually going to talk about what baseball might look like. Uh, in 2020 if it happens after the break. But before we get to that, I had just one more question I really wanted to ask you about these uh, documentaries that you've been doing for so long that are so great. Do you have a favorite moment or a most memorable moment, aside from being hit in the solar plexus (laughs) by Alfonso Soriano, that you'd like to share with people and maybe what episode they can find it in?
1: Well, um, you know, I have... Different episodes I I enjoy for different reasons. Um, I'm a huge fan of history and baseball history, so I really love some of those. You know, there's some people who maybe aren't into the history aspect as much, and uh, but just being lucky enough to be around um, certain people and capture um, some of their memories while they were still here, and some of those people have passed, like the um, the Late um, Vince Lloyd, who was a longtime Cubs um, radio announcer for, I think, 23 years. And then he also was uh, with Jack Brickhouse on WGN uh, from, I think, like 1949 until like 1983. And Yosh Kawano, who is the longtime trainer, like 60 years with the Cubs. And he never gave out interviews. And so I was lucky enough to get a chance to interview him. I think it's the only um, interview that I've ever seen that he did talking to anybody on camera. Um, So I like those, but I also love the ones that are more uh, kind of funny or uh, fun stuff. Like there was a hitting contest between Gracie Sandberg um, and uh, Dunstan and uh, (laughs) the Dunstan just could not stop like jawing it at uh, the other guys. And basically they're, you know, spring training and, and just kind of, you know, it's a little redundant at times, and so they play this hitting contest where when you're in BP, sometimes you score points by where you hit it, and uh so they're having this contest, and, and anyhow, Sean Dunstan just digs himself a hole that he can't get out of, but that's that was a really fun one, because um, it also kind of speaks to the intimate environment that spring training is. There's literally a handful of fans sitting there, and it was just this really unique moment. Um, so those are fun. Uh, Kevin Millar who had a a brief tryout, you know, know, from the MLB network and of course winning world series with the Red Sox and everything. He was with the Cubs one spring and I, I knew he was kind of a zany guy. (laughs) So (laughs) I happened to be up sitting in my, um, press box seat. And this is at the, the newer Holcomb stadium where the A's actually play now. And I'm filming him because it's just BP and he's standing in the outfield. And then uh, I heard he liked Guns N' Roses. And so the music guy put on a Guns N' Roses song and I'm filming him. He just throws his glove down on the, the ground and his hat, his ball cap. And he just starts doing the drums and kind of doing the air guitar and the whole nine yards. So I like, you know, episodes like that. And Kyle Schwerer, same thing, did a little air. He was playing the air bat uh two guns and roses you know so there's different episodes like that um i actually have i made an if af- what i call the official cub talks trailer which is know, only about two and a half minutes long but that can give people an idea of what you might see on a weekly basis and stuff so
0: well we will definitely share the cubs talks trailer from our twitter account at cubic blue so that people can awesome. get a better idea of what that looks like we'll also be sure to link Boys of Spring in our tweets and in the show notes so that people can find it. It's a great way to pass the time during the pandemic. We have a lot more with Tim Sheridan after the break. There is baseball news right now, people. So, you know, stay with us for a minute. Uh, But first, we need a quick word from our sponsors. And we're back. Uh, I have a few things that have jumped out at me in the last week that I really wanted to talk about on today's episode. And I'm going to start with the draft because the idea of a five-round draft just absolutely blows my mind in terms of the amount of talent that MLB could be missing out on. And so a friend of the show, uh, Chris from Turn Up Hair, which is another podcast, which is great and you should listen to it after you finish this one put together a list of every team's current 25-man roster and the players who were selected after the fifth round. And I'm not going to read that entire tweet for you, but I will read the Cubs players who were selected after the fifth round because there are some big names here and it's just stunning. So Anthony Rizzo, David Bodie, Kyle Hendricks, Kyle Ryan, Brandon Kinsler, Brad Brock, Rowan Wick and that doesn't include four international players including my favorite Wilson Contreras. I five a five round draft. I mean, what is MLB? What do you think MLB's trying to do here, Tim?
1: Uh he, well, it's zany. Obviously, you you know that they've, you know, been trying to uh contract a lot of minor league teams and maybe this obviously is a, something that works hand in hand with that and I don't know if you know, after the 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 five rounds then it's like it's just a free-for-all to you know sign like free agents as as you will like the NFL draft where guys who don't get drafted then they're available to be signed free agent it's it's weird after having such long drafts for so long and now they're going to cut it down to that which is even shorter than the NFL seven round draft so it's it's very odd
0: (laughs) it's tremendously odd and I I've heard a couple of different theses here that like players could be rolled into the next year's draft, which would be a full draft. But that just seems like it would, you know, flood the field for a couple of years and really make it hard for players to be drafted. I guess I also just worry, we have no idea what college sports are going to look like in 2020. So if you're a player who is at your prime right now, you're like 18, 19, 20 years old, You're ready to enter the draft and you're about to lose a season of college eligibility (laughs) and they're only going to draft five rounds. I just can't imagine what that does to a player's development. I think that you would have a really hard time keeping yourself in that prime state, having all of the at-bats that you need, particularly in a world where it doesn't look like gatherings are going to be all that plentiful (laughs) for like at least a year. I am nervous that we're going to lose a lot of great talent due to this situation.
1: I'd sure be worried if I was a player in that situation that you mentioned, that's for sure. It just, yeah, you you feel like you may not even get noticed just because of, you know, the whole situation of our world today.
0: Right. And so Keith Law from The Athletic had a great piece on this. I'm just going to read a paragraph from it. I, I highly recommend you check out the whole thing. Uh, the title of the piece is How the Five-Round Draft Hurts Players pro and ba- Pro Baseball as a Whole. Um, but he, he writes in there, there's a big ripple effect from players who expected to sign going back to school or going to college from high school. Division One schools only have 11.7 scholarships per team, and obviously there's no such thing as a fraction of a scholarship people. So, like, this is some, you know, they did, like, some math and averages and stuff. Uh, and coaches plan to distribute those under the assumption that some juniors will not return for their senior years and that some of the top recruits will never reach campus. Some members of both groups will now be at school fighting for the same playing time and same limited scholarships, which will squeeze some players out of lineups, out of scholarships or off rosters entirely. And I just, you know, this is probably the most extreme example of all of this, but you know, it's sort of a famous story that Mike Piazza got drafted as a catcher as a favor (laughs) in the final Mm -hmm. round. That is a hall of fame catcher who would yeah. absolutely get squeezed out of this system at this no moment kidding.
1: Time. Yeah, it's, I'm a real, a it's a head scratcher if you ask me uh I, I you know it's always one of those things where i hate to say it but it's like you got to go back to the money <laughs> how
0: <laughs> absolutely yes you know I think that this is totally about signing bonuses. It's 100% about what they need to pay players in order to draft them. And frankly, I find that I look, I get it. The economy is not in a great spot. There's going to be no gate revenue for teams for at least a year. They're probably going to if they play, they're going to play games without fans. But stunting an entire year's worth of development and losing out on potential talent just doesn't seem like the best move for an industry that is supposed to highlight the best athletes in the game.
1: It does not. I'm going to agree totally with that.
0: I I also just wanted your perspective on this a little bit because, you know, you've spent a bunch of time at spring training. One of the unique things about spring training is that the up and coming players are there. Right. And so you can talk to a hobby bias before he's hobby bias. You yeah, can talk I, to a, you can yeah. talk to a Wilson Contreras. Before he's Wilson Contreras, and I imagine some of those players are some of the most interesting conversations, right?
1: Yeah, uh, they are, and I I love that part about spring training. There are you know certain people who go to a game and feel like they pay money, and then the starters leave, say after the fifth inning, and then they feel like oh, then the minor league guys come in and like it's no good. They're somehow their their ticket money wasn't well spent, but. I love that because that's when you see the guys who are going to be the next stars. And it takes, I'll tell you what I introduced in a spring training game, Wilson Contreras, a full four years before he ever got to Wrigley field. Nice. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's just the way it is. He was 19 years old. Same thing with Javier Baez. Um, So I, I love that. I love seeing who the young guys coming up are and, that's the thing that you can track in spring training. That's where you get to really see them after that, unless you're going to minor league games, you you know, you're not going to be able to really follow them as much. So yeah. Right.
0: Well, you know, and a mutual friend of ours celebrated a birthday yesterday, happy belated birthday to Danny Rocket. Uh, Yeah, Danny. (laughs) In his uh, birthday live stream celebration, one of the stories that got told that I thought was so incredible was about, um, and I'm I'm trying to remember who did this interview. I apologize. I'm not going to be able to give credit to the right person. It might be Corey Finn. I hope it's Corey from IBMB because if it is, then I've done it right. I've done this right. (laughs) That told the story about interviewing Javi Baez before he was Javi Baez and having like 50 minutes to sit down and talk to Javi Baez and just learn all about him and get to know him as a person and figure out that he's not what you're hearing on the scouting reports. He's a lot more reserved. He's not quite as, you know, he's not this person that's like all out there. And I believe that the buzz had been like egotistical or whatever. And that just was not the case. Um, but those are the types of things you get to know from players when they're coming up through the systems. If you, ha- if you kneecap the minor league system, we'll lose a lot of that. And I just think it's tremendously sad.
1: It is. It really is. I, Totally agree with that.
0: Um, okay, we're gonna we're gonna move on a little bit to the next piece of news, which is also interesting. We've got um, so this is some COVID-related news that I thought was really kind of crazy. Apparently, the largest antibody test that has been run so far. So, antibody tests, just to remind people, are like they test your blood to make to see if you've had the disease because you have antibodies in it. So it's not the same as the like seeing if you're sick right now. It's seeing if you were sick in the past. Uh, MLB participated in this study with Stanford. And over 5,600 players, uh, MLB personnel, front office types, people who travel with the teams, coaches, et cetera, participated in this study. And according to this, only 0.7% of players currently have antibodies. And the reason this is important is because antibodies are sort of considered the hey, once a certain number of people have them, we can all act like normal again because <laughs> people aren't going to get sick anymore. That is a tiny, minuscule fraction of the people who are needed to make a baseball season happen. And I am just very concerned that the there won't, this puts a serious dent in the idea of having a safe season. Like the whole idea of having a 2020 season is that you can somehow quarantine off teams, you can put them in safe spaces as soon as somebody gets sick, we'll isolate them. And there'll be some, and I, man, the idea that like the whole league hasn't had this yet just seems like a potential recipe for disaster in terms of infection.
1: Sure does. It's kind of scary. But there's, you know, there's so many, I, I read a lot and there's just so many different ways of, of looking at this thing. And since it is something that, well, in essence, it's relatively new, the whole COVID, because it's, it's different than any of the the viruses of the past and um, in certain ways. And I'm no doctor, so I don't you know, want to get on that part of it. But, um, you know, people, the average people that y- you talk to that, you know, you can get like 10 feet away and maybe have a little conversation. Um, they, they talk about like getting the country back to work and and look what sweden's doing and sweden's trying to build the, the herd immunity type of thing and that that's really the only way that we're going to get back because the a vaccine's too far down the road um there's just so many variables in this and, and baseball with, with that test that you mentioned and that small small number it's just like you say that it's a recipe for disaster, if you ask me, but um, you know, they're they're bound to determine to move forward in some way, shape, or form.
0: Well, and I, I understand why they want to move forward. My brother and I talk about this all the time. We're actually on very different sides of the political fence on this one, but <laughs> I, I don't think this is necessarily a political issue. I right. you know, I I appreciate that having baseball at this moment in time would be the greatest break from the long day of pandemic news, working from home, social distancing, masks all the things all of us are doing to try to keep each other safe. Having that three hour long break in the evening would be just a wonderful thing for everybody, but you've got to do it in a way that keeps the players safe. If you can't, if you can't keep the players safe, then I just don't think you can do it. And you know, I, I, Sean Doolittle, who's one of my favorite players, he's probably one of the players I most wish was a Cub, had this really outstanding uh, Twitter reaction to one of the proposals to have the season start. And he was just wondering, you know, what testing looks like, what happens when people get sick, things about hazard pay for workers who work at the ballpark. You know, you can't run a baseball game with just the players. A lot of people have to come to the park. People like you, Tim. (laughs) To make this happen.
1: Yeah. I yeah. just
0: I, wonder how we do all of that to get baseball back, even if there are no fans, even if there's not 40,000 people cheering at Wrigley Field.
1: They, there's certainly, uh, you know, a ton of moving parts to figure this all out. That's for sure. And and I even wondered that. It's like if they're going to have, when well, they're talking about a spring training, you know, they had the Arizona plan, then the Arizona and Florida plan, then the Texas, and then, you know, it's just they've been going through all these different variations of what, you know, they might do and what a baseball season might look like. And I was thinking to myself, all right, is do they need a public address announcer? If there's no fans, I mean, you know, it's something that you've never had to think about before. It's like, well, it seems like they would just because it's an organizational aspect of the game. And if there's an emergency, those kinds of things, you know, public address announcers voice can be heard all over the stadium. So if there's a guy, you know, out in, in center field who you need to say something to he can be heard as opposed to, you know, scurrying somebody out there to get him. I don't know. It's like the whole thing is uh, just totally unique and odd. And it's, it's really hard to figure it all out, but uh, you know, they got the smarter people than me, I guess, trying to do it. So.
0: That's true. They have smarter people than me working on it too. I just like to speculate once a week, because it's all I have right now.
1: <laughs> well, let's face it. If they could get baseball back and, and going, like, say, no fans, whatever, you can only binge watch the new shows and movies for so long. It's like totally. people would just love to have that baseball in there. So, you know, it's it'd be great, but you got to keep people safe.
0: Well, I couldn't agree with you on that more. I mean, the only thing in my life that is even close to comparable to this was baseball coming back after 9-11. And I, we've all seen the, I, I don't know about you, we've all seen the video of that Piazza home run after 9-11 yeah. and everybody goes nuts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, I can't even talk, I'm tearing up right now talking about mm-hmm. this. I'm trying not to like choke a little bit as we're recording. Or the video of Sammy Sosa with the American flags like warning yeah. out. To the outfield. Those are iconic moments. And iconic,
1: yeah, no doubt. They're healing
0: moments, right? Like they're moments that you want to embrace, but we have to do it in a way that keeps players safe. These are young men who have their whole careers in front of them. They have families. Some of them have kids that are just being born, like Chris Bryant. They've got them safe.
1: It's a it's a weird time to, you know, have a a baby, I have a, a neighbor here in Minneapolis who they just had a baby, and it's the, one of those things where it's like, wow, you just wish this all wasn't going on right now.
0: <laughs> you know, I have a friend who just had a baby, and it's it's like her second or third baby, so this wasn't her first experience with it, but she had to go into the hospital without her husband.
1: Right, and right. That-
0: that's not a normal thing. It is not normal to not have anybody by your side while you're bringing a new life into the world. But hospitals yeah. are on such lockdown right now that it's, you can't even have one person with you to visit in some places. And that is just, I can't even imagine how hard that is. So to think about baseball being played in a time like that, as much as we all want it and as healing as it would all be, it has to be done safely.
1: Totally agree.
0: Along those lines, and and this is what we'll finish up with. Yesterday, there was an MLB conference call between owners and the owners of all 30 teams agreed that they had come up with a plan to restart baseball. Now, one of the elements of that plan that kind of immediately got shot down by the MLB Players Association is the idea of capping players' salaries relative to revenues, Uh, so It was basically like, whatever we bring in this season, we will prorate all your salaries based on a 48% share of that for only the 2020 season. This is fascinating to me for a couple of reasons. The first is that in March, the MLBPA and MLB agreed that players would have prorated salaries, but not any type of cap relative to gate revenue or anything like that. But the second is that this is, the owner is trying to backdoor a salary cap the year before the next collective bargaining agreement (laughs) comes out. And players were furious and I don't blame them.
1: (laughs) I don't blame them either. You know, it's their livelihood. And if they're trying to kind of circumvent a a way to get something situated where it works out and the players are going to be hurt by that, I'd be, I'd have a problem with it too.
0: I mean, I just, so, you know, for those of you who maybe don't pay like a ton of attention to the CBA or only, maybe you only worry about it when there's a risk of a labor shortage, a labor mm-hmm. stoppage or a strike or whatever. Um, the cap has been like, that is the poison pill. That is the one thing that the owners and MLB want more than anything and that the players will not agree to. And MLB players have a pretty strong union. So they've been able to keep that out of their agreements for years. It would be an earth-shattering proposal to all of a sudden agree to a cap for this year. And frankly, I wrote about this yesterday for Bleed Cubby Blue. I, if you're asking players to go into a situation where their job is more dangerous, not less dangerous, I don't understand why they're taking a cut in pay for that at all. Like, I understand why they're getting a prorated salary because they're only playing 82 games rather than 162 But I don't think they should get a cut and pay for those games. Those games are more dangerous. When you go into a more dangerous work environment, you get more money. Or at least I thought you did. Maybe I'm not. (laughs) Well,
1: hazard pay, exactly. There's certain jobs that are dangerous and they get paid more because of it.
0: So I'm just, I'm really nervous that that particular element of the owner's agreement, which let's be clear right now, people, because I had a lot of people come at me in the last 24 hours so overjoyed that baseball was coming back because they heard about the owner's agreement. And I had to, I had to kind of bring them back a little bit and say, no, 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 we're not even close to done yet. We're like on the five yard line and we have 95 yards to go. Um, But that owner's agreement is precisely that it is an agreement that the owners have reached on what would be ideal for them. And now we're going to see what they're willing to negotiate with the players but also all of the people who make baseball work, all of the traveling secretaries, all of the people you don't see, the valets who are carrying gear back and forth. Those people need protections too, and I'm I'm pretty fascinated about how this is going to go.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's there's so many people that are on the kind of periphery of the game that people don't really think about, and they're at risk as much as anybody else with the whole situation. So. Uh, Yeah, it is the players. That's the the biggest thing we all think about. They're the marquee. They're the attraction. But, you know, these are all human lives. Let's think of it that way. And, uh, you know, just because you're a big baseball star and you make, you know, millions of dollars, it doesn't necessarily make you any more valuable than, you know, this other human over here. It makes us want to see what you do. Sure. But, you know, that's the way I feel about it.
0: I totally agree with that. And, you know, I mentioned Sean Doolittle. A minute ago, I'm actually going to read a tiny part (laughs) of what he talked about in terms of why players reacted the way that they did to this particular agreement, because I I just think it's important that people understand, you know, one of the things he says, and, and this is absolutely right. I think about this at least once a day, every day. This is a novel virus. There's so much we don't know. We don't know the long term effects. On top of respiratory issues, there's evidence of kidney, intestinal, liver damage, neurological malfunctions, blood clots, strokes. If you are a world-class athlete, do you really want to put yourself in the way of any of those things? Or do you want to risk bringing that home to your family? I mean, I don't want to risk bringing that home to my building, and I am not a world-class athlete. So I don't... I have a hard time seeing how the owners are going to come up with a plan that is going to appeal to the players and get these and get baseball going. I hope I'm wrong. I would love nothing more than to see baseball played safely in 2020, but I'm, I'm not very optimistic today.
1: Yeah, I'm with you. I'm not super optimistic about that either. Um, Just to use, you know, your analogy, you know, we might be on the 5, maybe we're on the 7-yard line, maybe we're but we're 90 yards away. So right. we're going to see. It's still a long way to go and and so many questions that I would have if I was a player. Sure, the owners can get together and you know, say what they think is best, but uh, everyone has to look out for themselves and their families and that's, you know, that's kind of the important thing that uh, they will have to come to the table with.
0: Well, you know, and you just reminded me that um, there was another great article in The Athletic, and I apologize I didn't put this in show notes. So I'm not going to remember who wrote mm-hmm. it off the top of my head. But there are players with pre-existing conditions. You know, Brandon Morrow is a diabetic. Uh, sure. There are players dealing with pre-existing conditions that make this a substantially riskier proposition for them. Right. And none of them should put their lives on the line for a game. <laughs>
1: No, you wouldn't think so.
0: <laughs> wow, I am okay. We got to find something a little bit more upbeat to end. Yeah, I know. On. Tim, Tim, it's been great having you here. Let me see <laughs> if I can find something a little bit more optimistic for us to talk about, rather than the lack of baseball in 2020. Yes,
1: and uh, yeah, let's 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 bring this up to. a a nice, high, pleasant note somehow. (laughs) And I don't sing, so I'm not going to do it that way.
0: That I know Andy wanted to ask you if she had been able to to be here. She says, you know, we know that you've been elbow to elbow in the booth with folks like Harry Carey and Ron Santo. And we don't want to spoil any of your episodes for people who are all going to Boys of Spring right now to check out those videos. But If do you have a Ron Santo or Harry Carey story that you want to tell us beyond Harry trying to break your camera?
1: (laughs) Well, uh, it just, I mean, I just had an incredible time, uh, getting to introduce Harry for the seventh inning stretch because, as as you probably know, well, back when, when Harry was singing uh, Take Me Out to a Ball Game at Wrigley Field, he essentially just did it on his. WGN microphone right from his booth so that was that there was no exchange of a microphone no handing it off to Harry like I did because they had pretty primitive environment over at the old Holcomb Park which was uh, torn down after the 96 season so Harry was only at the new ballpark in 97 because he passed away before the spring of uh, 98 before the game started and um, so just having the privilege to be able to Introduce him and hand him the microphone was like just a thrill. And a lot of times, and this will actually be in an upcoming episode because I think I've possibly shot the only film or video of Harry sitting in the stands, um, drinking beer, watching oh. as a fan. And that's what he did. So oddly enough, the old Hohokam Park, they didn't start selling beer until um, 1989. Wow, And so, yeah, which is odd. And um, Mormon community, I don't know what the whole deal was. I wasn't really involved in that. But at any rate, I started noticing and I knew that Harry liked to go to the games and just kind of hang out and be a fan, even when he wasn't working, when he didn't have to announce a game. So I started noticing him being in the stands and drinking beer. Well, anytime Harry was at the ballpark, he would still work his way up by the seventh inning to get up there to sing the seventh inning stretch and he'd probably you know knocked back a few beers during the game because he wasn't working but he always made it up there he always made it a ton of fun a lot of times with this old pa mic i had there's a locking mechanism and i've told this story a bunch of times but um harry said tim when you hand me the microphone make sure it's locked on so you just give it to me i'm ready to go so i always had it locked on and you know every so often every you know every fifth game or something he i would hand it to him when he'd say tim is this thing on and of course the whole stadium (laughs) would hear that which is you know that's just harry that's that's how he was and um just ron santo was just so fun and to be around and he was the nicest guy to me and um everyone treated me maybe I was like this young kid who was just like had to pinch himself because I was there between all these people. And um you know, they just they couldn't be nicer. So they, I mean I have a few stories that are kind of you know off color and maybe some of those will come out in the cup Talks. I'm not sure. <laughs> but um yeah, I don't have anything to say, but but you know, great times and and I will say that uh my greatest thrill as a uh, Cubs fan and a Cubs public address announcer was in the spring of 2017 when I got to be the first Cubs public address announcer uh, to introduce them as your World Series champion Chicago Cubs. And that was the thrill of a lifetime because after doing announcing for 30 plus years, I was not sure if they ever would win that World Series. You know, there was a lot of Uh, difficult times getting there. And so to be able to do that, um, that spring of 2017 was like just a highlight of a lifetime.
0: Uh, I can't think of a more perfect note to end this show on. That is incredible. And I, all Cubs fans understand exactly what you're talking about there. (laughs) Tim, thank you so much for being here. If you're listening, you can find these documentaries we've been talking about, at Boys of Spring. You can find them also on YouTube. Tim, do you have a Twitter or Facebook account people can follow you at?
1: Yep. Yeah, uh, same thing. Uh, Tim Shardner, Boys of Spring uh, on Twitter and Facebook. There's Boys of Spring, Wrigleyville West um, type of thing. So for Facebook.
0: Outstanding. You can find me at, at BCB underscore Sarah. You can find Andy at BRYZ underscore Blue. You can find both of us at, at Cup of Cubby Blue. And we are here for the duration, people. We have got your Cubs news, updates, and banter, whether there is baseball or not, until baseball returns. We miss you, baseball. Come back soon.
1: Yes, we do.